Welcome to this week's Flood and Fire Ain't Stopping the Fossil Fuels Flow. <laughs> Edition. I told you I had nothing, Charlie. I told you I had nothing and then I laboured on it too much for, yeah, for it's, 60 it's, seconds. It's, I think it's one of those awful <laughs> moments where you go, I've got nothing except the fact that humanity is doomed. <laughs> if, we, if we drill down far enough, that's what we get. Um, that's it. Like much of the media, that is the only mention you'll hear of the climate crisis. <laughs> This week, anyway. This is, of course, Spin Cycle, the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle, broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and Charlie Lewis, as you have uh, very much clocked already, (laughs) is back in the studio this week. We're going to be joined by culture writer, editor and podcaster Brody Lancaster. We thought in the week of, um, you know, the block par- blockbuster being back, the Hollywood block- blockbuster being back and also lots of um, strikes happening in the US and I thought it would be a nice time to talk to someone about what the lay of the land looks like here in terms of film and culture reporting uh, so Brody will be joining us for that. But first, Charlie, you were not here last week. We no. had a fabulous show without you. Sorry. sorry <laughs> it was not, good. Look- sorry, not sorry. <laughs> um, you were instead uh, at a riveting event uh, that I'm so keen to hear a little bit more about. Um, I don't know if I am. But <laughs> but I am, I'm interested because it could have been Sarah Henderson's first venture into the western suburbs. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to know um, how many other times uh, this sort of thing has happened. Yeah, so I was at a an event um, organised by uh, kind of the, the state and federal electoral committees uh, for the area of the west of Melbourne, basically, um, which I'm sure anyone listening to, to our show would probably know is the the deep part of, of Labour territory, both at a state and federal level. I mean, it's... The western suburbs... Yeah, so, I mean, this is like, well, it's literally Bill Shorten. I know, but seat. you say that, but um, Katie really sort of in f- state uh, scraped in a little bit, Labor, she did, in the last it, but, election. But, it, but those votes and were not going to the right. They were going to the left. They were... Oh, uh, interesting, because there was, I in my part of the West, mm-hmm. there were a lot of signs up for... Um, Local right leaning. That's very interesting. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, so my members, I, my, my some parties. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so far as I understand, and Moira Deeming is in the West, isn't she? Yeah. Well, she was. She was at this event. Um, oh, hello. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little little cameo <laughs> get Moira. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, so, from what I understand, it was mainly that the the Greens and the Victorian Socialist vote went up, and and the Victorian Socialists were preferencing the Greens above. Labour, and that's what kind of ran Katie Hall to the line. Um, I thought it was also rezoning. Oh, it might have been that too, yeah, yeah. Um, because, yeah, anyway. But but regardless, I mean, I think it is also, I mean, 
historically anyway, it's been yes. this has been Labour's property mm. electorally for a very long time. I wouldn't be surprised if it turns, just saying. Interesting. Well, mm. we'll keep an eye on that. Mm. Um, you may be vindicated. Um, I mean, what I did... I, Elec- electoral expert over here. Sophologist <laughs> <laughs> Jess Lilly. <laughs> um, but it was, I mean, it was the, the one thing that, I mean, so it was essentially an event talking about education policy in the country mm. uh, led by... Uh, the Federal Coalition spokesperson, Senator um, Sarah Henderson for education and long-time um, culture warrior and kind of commentator Kevin Donnelly. They were the two kind of draw cards for this this event and uh, they were speaking about education policy. And, I, and I, the main surprise I, I got from the evening was just... It, it was liberal... Yeah. ...only event. When you say federal spokesperson. Anyway, you keep going because I'm confused. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, uh, the thing that surprised me the most was how well attended it was and how genuinely... Um, it's funny, actually. I think the, the, the person who organised it actually ended up sharing my piece. So they... You obviously didn't mind it too much, what I had to say. And and maybe part of the reason was I was like, well, I have to be honest here. This is better attended than I expected it to be. And it's more diverse, both in terms of age groups. All these all these events, political events during the week, you'll be shocked to hear, always skew a bit older. But but this was, from an age point of view, much more of a range of people. And, and also just like ethnically very diverse group that kind of showed up to, to hear this stuff. I mean, that's the West, I think... That's representative, oh, of, it's, it's of, representative the, of the West. The West. But, but you see, you're proving my point here, Charlie. The, the, the my whole prediction. Thing is, we're going to veer <laughs> strongly to the right. I, I didn't time. say strongly. <laughs> I just think I I just think that um, yeah, there's a potential. Interesting for things interesting. to move. Hmm. But it was it was. I mean, I, I suppose as I say, it wasn't hugely surprising. There was a lot of the kind of um, I guess. Sleight of hand that you expect from these kind of events. If you ever, because the, the subtitle of it was, classrooms are for education, not indoctrination. Mm. That was their their kind of mm-hmm. whole pitch. And so basically, it came to the whole idea of you know the, the idea that 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 educational institutions have been kind of this is this is a long time theory of, of Donnelly by the way that um, they've been kind of taken over the long march of the left through all the various institutions um, particularly educational in this country that is that are now indoctrinating kids into uh, black armband history and climate alarmism and gender ideology all the, all the all the stuff that you kind of expect them to talk about and of course the the strange thing is about that is that you say in one breath well we don't want any yet we don't, we don't want ideological indoctrination for kids. We just want the basics. We just want them to learn how to read and write and get on with their lives. But th- at the same time, Donnelly is... They want to completely... It's, it's furious that, that judo-Christianity and the Western <laughs> civilization canon is not being indoctrinated into kids from a young enough age. It's, 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 um, well, they, and also, it's a tightrope. But, they, yeah. they want a completely different view of history taught in yeah. schools. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, that's, you know, and that goes back to Howard and probably... Probably earlier, mm. John Howard. But that's was not always, indoctrination. That's it's not just indoctrination education. To, yeah, that's just education. Yeah. To, <laughs> to, um, <laughs> I see. Yeah, <laughs> just, just people feeling comfortable about their place in the world. That's not. That's not indoctrination. Right. Okay. Triple R. Brodie Lancaster is a Melbourne-based writer and editor whose work has appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, The New York Times, Vogue, Jezebel, The Monthly, Vulture, and 
I've got to admit, look out. Putting this together, I kind of began to expect I could just say I could I could just guess a publication, and your work may well have turned up. Um, There's no Herald Sun or Sky News there for balance. I no, this is true. This be, is true. I just want to put it out there, Brady. Well, it's, it's it's like the old uh, two sides, both sides. Both well, sides. it's like the whole the old Billy Hughes gag where he's he was a famous turncoat politician, and at some point they went, "Why did you never join the country party?" And he said, "Well, you got to draw the line somewhere." <laughs> Um, I've completely lost track of my thoughts. Sorry. She is the author of the memoir, No Way, Okay, Fine, and the co-host of a weekly podcast, a weekly pop culture podcast called See Also. I think it's fair to call her a friend of this station, and we are delighted to have her with us. Brody, welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So I suppose we thought that the the kind of thing that got us wanting to talk to a film writer was the... um, the Barbenheimer effect, shall we say. Sure, sure. Um, and for our listeners who aren't aware of this, the um, incredible... I mean, if you could possibly fail to be aware <laughs> of it. I was about to say, that is a tall ask. <laughs> the films Oppenheimer and Barbie have both dropped this week. Everyone is shook by this whole process. Um, can you remember the last time that there was this level of like cultural saturation around a film, or, or in this case, two films? I genuinely can't, although... I feel like the equivalent are films that I wasn't personally invested in, like the Avengers Endgame kind Mm. of, Mm. that was a big moment for cinemas and like a huge kind of box office opening weekend. Um, People have been making comparisons to, because, you know, I'm not going to gender the two films. Barbie is very pink, has a very (laughs) kind of like feminist, women-friendly message. Oppenheimer, there are three women with speaking roles in a cast of like four trillion white male (laughs) actors. So people have been making some kind of gendered, there's been a lot of gendered commentary about the two. And the last time that two films were released on the same day with a kind of a similar bent was another Christopher Nolan film, The Dark Knight, which opened the same day as Mamma Mia. (laughs) (laughs) But Mamma Mia was no Barbie. No. I I remember that there was a lot of hype around like Black Panther in terms of, you know, a big mainstream blockbuster film that was, um, you know, doing that sort of irreverent satirical thing or not satirical even but doing but going for a, an audience that wasn't necessarily where that audience was. That That's probably the last time I can think of but it, that double header mm. is, is something new. What, what, what um, brought that about, do you know? I, I think it was truly just the co- coincidence or like the, you know, people realising that they were going to be released on the same day, these two massive films. Surely the studios had some, like, you sure it wasn't confected? Well, I'm not Mm. sure that any... Look, I think a Christopher Nolan film getting released is going to be a huge weekend Mm. for studios and I think a film that has potential to go on to be like a big franchise, sequels, etc., like Barbie is probably the same, but most often, you know, it's it's like the same way with music releases. No one wants to release their record the same day a new Taylor Swift album comes out because they'll, you know, she's a chart dominator. Mm. And so I think the same is true here. And it, I'm not sure that it does a service to either film to um, kind of hold them up against one another. People have been talking about, like, comparisons between the box office returns. Barbie made, I think, almost double in America what Oppenheimer did on opening weekend, but it's a much more accessible film. It's a lot sh- It's half the length. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I think the, 
the doubleheader, the memeable quality mm. of these two very different films opening on the same weekend, the boys go to Oppenheimer, girls go to Barbie, <laughs> kind of primary school politics of it all. I think that's kind of done a credit to both of the films. Yeah, I 100%. Don't, I don't know if I would have gone to Oppenheimer opening weekend had I not wanted to be a part of the cultural conversation. Mm. You did write a piece for um, the monthly a review about Bar- of Barbie where you where you mentioned that um, it's the it was a you know it's Barbie it's as you expect but the feminism was a little bit light on. Mm. Were you expecting anything different or? I think there's uh, there's kind of layers to it, right? Because it's a it's a film about Barbie, but it's also a Greta Gerwig film, and she's you know she came out of this like very DIY independent film movement in America like 15 years ago. I think I saw my first Greta Gerwig kind of starring film or co-directed indie mumblecore film, <laughs> um, and you know her directorial fit works have been very like female focus, very like true, honest stories, Lady Bird and um, Little Women. And so I think there's, that's what was kind of interesting about Barbie is that you, you hear that there's going to be a Barbie movie, maybe starring Margot Robbie and you're like, okay, I, I can kind of predict what this is going to be. But the Greta Gerwig element was kind of the, the mm. wild card for me. Mm. Yeah. And um, it's so fascinating to me that, you know, on the one hand there are people saying, oh, you know, the, the politics could have been more... Women saying the politics could have been more feminist. And on the other hand, uh, men saying, oh, my God, they mentioned the patriarchy three times. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's really strange to me how much, um, you know, kind of conservative-leaning, like, commentators have... A, associated themselves with or aligned themselves with the Ken who from the start of the film is he's just he's he only exists in service to Barbie you know it's the total opposite of the Adam and Eve like he's there for her and if not for her he does not exist and it's that kind of thing of just being like we were talking about this beforehand while we were prepping where it's like just there's a certain section of the audience that cannot conceive of a film that wasn't made specifically with them in mind. Well, a blockbuster, yeah. you know, a big, or, or a yeah. big, yeah, big film, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the cinema next door, you know, just go yeah. watch Oppenheimer. Florence That's what you want. Pugh's on screen in the first like 20 minutes, and then she's naked <laughs> immediately. <laughs> One line, and her clothes are off. Uh, which sort of circles us back to film criticism, I suppose. And this is an interesting example of that. What do you, you know, what does this moment say about the kind of where film criticism is at the moment where Mm. you know popular film kind of reporting is Mm. I think it's it's been an interesting week to kind of think about that at the same time as looking at a platform like Twitter, which is like the place. Sorry, for, X, thank you. Yeah, sorry, I'll oh my just god, check you there. I don't want to, <laughs> don't want to use the old, <laughs> the old name. Not to dead name Twitter. Uh, X, sorry, sorry. Um, but uh, now knee Twitter is. Uh, uh, the it's pl- all right. It could be Twitter. We're we're in a yeah, safe space. Here. I haven't updated my app, so I think it's always going to be for me. Yeah, but. Yeah. Um, it's the place for like takes and like immediate reactions. And I think like that's certainly what my review had to be, but just because of the nature of online publishing, it means I saw the film on Wednesday night, I woke up on Thursday morning, I had to file it by lunchtime, you know, mm-hmm. and my feelings about the film have kind of changed or shifted. I've mm-hmm. read more, I've thought more about it since then. And so if I were to write that review now, I think it would be very different. Um, and I think that's something that, film Mm. criticism at the moment and for a long time hasn't 
always hasn't really allowed for is that kind of nuance and the the time between consuming something, the time you're allowed to sit with something. Mm. You know, there weren't preview screenings of Barbie months and months ago so that people could, or even, you know, there were some a few weeks ago, but um, I wasn't invited. But, um, <laughs> you know, to allow for reviewers to sit with it and to mm. think about what it had to say, I remember it must have been the American embargo on reviews must have been like midnight or 12.01 a.m. Wednesday time because I remember being on X and uh, <laughs> seeing, you know, New York Times, Salon, Jezebel. Ev- All pop up. Within a minute of one another, you know, the publications, the writers themselves who I followed um, and they had like the turnaround time that I was really envious of mm. that, you know, we don't always get the same kind of access in Australia. Mm. Which I suppose, I mean, that, that sort of does come to um, another point that we wanted to get into, which was, you know, you, I guess your experiences more more generally as a, as a film and, and culture, but specifically as a film writer mm. in Australia. I mean, how has that changed over the time that you've been doing it? As we, as we pointed out, you have written for literally every publication in the world. <laughs> um, yeah, talk to us about, about, I guess, yeah, how that's changed and, and how the modern, how things are now for you. Yeah. Um, it, it's strange to think that there's like... I, 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 that things are so different from when I started, you know, I kind of started freelancing and, and writing in like 2010 and when young writers who are interested in doing similar stuff ask me for advice, I feel a little stumped sometimes yeah. because I got so many assignments because of places that I was willing to write for for free uh, because I didn't know better <laughs> and um, I would just tweet about the things that I was interested in and editors might see them and assign me stories and without like a following or a blue tick I'm not sure how often that's happening anymore with the decline of that platform um there was also so many more avenues for cultural reviewing like I think yeah you know I mean just even my experience years ago when I started writing it was all you were just given all film music everything reviews mm. because they had to, they wanted mm. a lot of content yeah cultural content and it was like give the inexperienced writers all the CDs mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah to yeah, review yeah. and go to the films and go to the gigs yeah but now there's actually no uh, uh, there's there's no outlets for that as much anymore totally yeah it's been a while since I was at uni but I remember the people who wrote for street presses and who did like community or student radio um, were the ones who got all the new albums before everyone else (laughs) and I would, you know, steal them and put them on my iPod. Um, But, yeah, I think at the time I was kind of bummed at how often websites or publications were folding or how few Mm. opportunities or ways in there were and now there are even fewer outlets, even fewer, you know, page pages to fill. Um, or you know. testing grounds too, like learning opportunities. Yeah. And I feel like with the, with the kind of shrinking of newsrooms too, it means that um, the ability to kind of be taught is probably going away because your editor or your mentor or whoever, the person hiring you, is probably also meeting a zillion deadlines, whereas in the past they might have just you know, that role might have been assigning and reviewing and, and mm. training. Yeah. Wow, it's bleak, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I I wish that I knew how to get a foot in the door these days because mm. I would really love to be able to kind of pass that along. I mean, a big part of how I got a lot of opportunities early on was because I started my own little, you know, self-published zine about mm. women in film and that was the thing that got 
my foot in the door because people heard about it, but they heard about it through publications like 3000 that don't exist anymore. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And how's it changed for you as a, a, a freelance writer mm. over that time? Uh, it's I'm, – I'm lucky that I, I feel like I'm in a really – lucky position that I think sometimes my name comes up for certain kinds of stories you know I've kind of carved out a little bit of a a corner for myself writing about like very popular stuff with like really wide appeal I don't do a whole lot of kind of like niche indie film or music writing um I spent a lot of years writing about One Direction and pop music <laughs> and and massive fan and communities <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um I still haven't got to interview Harry Styles still on the bucket list but um I I feel like the 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 need to pitch is still definitely there and without that the same kind of access that I would get if maybe I was based out of, you know, New York or London or wherever. Um, I feel like the opportunities are pretty limited, you know, mm. like an I might be writing a cover story on an artist or a person, you know, anyone, um, not necessarily a musician, and I might get 15 minutes on Zoom mm. and then have to find a long-form way in, whereas, like, you know, an international wow. publication might get a weekend at their house because they're, you know, geographically, you know, there yeah. and the publications carry a little more weight, I think, in other parts of the world. Wow. And, and what do you think is happening with the conversation? Like what what is, you know, in terms of film and cultural criticism here, um, with less publications, with less voices and with less kind of column inches, I suppose, or... Um, you know, pages dedicated to it, even in the in the mainstream sort of mm. publications. Mm. What do you think the kind of the general state of cultural um, conversation or dialogue or criticism is here? Mm. I think it's tricky because um, so often, like there are so few culture-specific publications in Australia mm. that the ones that do cover culture like let's use Barbie and Oppenheimer as an example they might do a review of one they might have one other story about some kind of trend you know like I was reading in the age a story about the like 70 millimeter um theaters that are just like selling out Oppenheimer like oh yeah top I read, to bottom yep. every day um I did see a tweet from a projectionist who was like please, can someone else learn how to do this? We're so tired. Um, that was my my local cinema and he was like, yes, uh, the colours are so much richer in the, yeah. in, the, in the 70 millimetre film. And I was like, yep. That, I'd really love to see it the, in IMAX. the inner west. Unfortunately, so does everyone else. Yeah. Um, but uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, but, you know, the it means that kind of the conversation is limited to maybe one or two pieces and then it's done it's moved on mm. to the next thing and I, I suppose that the, the thing that the, the obvious sort of reaction and it, this happens a lot in australia but it happens probably in most countries is the the response is always like oh well who really cares what do we actually but like i'd like to talk a bit what do you think we actually lose when we lose a healthy and thriving critical community when mm. we actually talk about these things i think it's something that you can really recognize when you uh think about it like historically you know um uh, I think of some, a music critic like Eileen Willis who, mm. you know, her writing on 
popular music. She was a new, the New Yorker's first pop music critic in like the 60s and 70s. Tells you so much about what it was like to be a woman in the 60s and 70s in America, in New York specifically. Um, it wasn't just about music. And I mm. think the best criticism isn't just about the thing it's looking at. It's about like what it's reacting to, what it's comprised of, the cultural moment it's coming out of. And um, I think that you lose kind of the long range view of this moment if um, if all you're doing is kind of going, we've got to tell people if it's three stars or four stars and get mm. it out and then no one's going to, I don't know if that's changing any minds, maybe, maybe people buying any tickets or like changing opinions or kind of opening up a new perspective. Yeah, yeah. Or just, I mean, the other the obvious thing is like the hot take, the kind of like, let's see if we can make people really mad yeah. with our view on this film or this this artist or whatever. Yeah, getting more eyeballs on mm. with any by any means necessary. <laughs> or even having to align it to some sort of ideological take, which is what's been happening, you know, this weekend, like... <laughs> Dude bros, I'm so angry. I've paid a ticket to see Barbie and yeah. I'm going to dedicate a two-hour two YouTube video to it. Yeah. But I'm really mad about it. <laughs> the the react I could – how much time do we have? Can I spend an hour talking about the genre of, like, reaction videos yeah, on YouTube? Yeah, 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 because, yeah, we can talk about that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's a, great, that's a great observation in terms of how – it's, you know, we've just been talking about traditional media mm. and how traditional media responds to film. But actually, that, as we know, there's massive audiences do not consume traditional mm -hmm. media. They consume YouTube and social media. Mm. So, yeah, what's the narrative there? Yeah. I mean, I spend a lot of time on TikTok and I find sometimes it... It really kind of, like I was just talking about, like really good criticism kind of expands, zooms out from the thing it's talking about. I feel like... TikTok quote-unquote criticism often just like zooms in on like one really small thing and there's this phrase that I've heard people use about like Columbusing things like every young person on TikTok right. who talks about anything acts as if they're the one who has discovered it for the first time <laughs> yeah. and they're sharing yeah, yeah, a new yeah. piece of information. Oh, I love that. And there's, you know, there's been some research done on, um, you know, I don't want to make any generalizations, but like older generations, you might say boomers on Facebook. Whereas they gormansplain things. Who, do they? <laughs> Is that the term? Um, you know, the kind of, the I, that stereotype or cliche of like believing everything you see because it was on Facebook. You know, mm. we heard a lot about this in like the US election in 2016 um, and the years since, but a kind of similar trend is happening on TikTok where young people believe whatever they hear on the platform. You know, it's very rarely accredited to anyone who did any work on it. There's a lot of kind of, there's this reaction cycle that's going on. Um, I got really off track there. So. Yeah. Actually, just one really practical question. What's the longest a TikTok can be? Uh, ten minutes. Okay, right. So you, is, you could actually do a you could do a bit of work there, and you, um, could. you could potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And some people really do, you know. Yeah. And I, I I'm really impressed by a platform like Letterboxd, which be, you know mm, started mm. as kind of a way to like log the films that you had seen or wanted to see. Mm. You can give a star rating. You can write a little review. You can follow people and see what they have to say about films. Um, but Letterboxd has also become like a media outlet as well. You know they did like a, I think like a 15 or 20 minute interview with Greta Goig as part of the Barbie press tour um, pre-strike when she was kind of out of, 
uh, her ability to do that where she sat down and she talked through every classic Hollywood musical and mm. kind of soundstage film that inspired the aesthetics or the music or mm. her direction, directing choices in Barbie and, you know, that exists on their YouTube, it exists on their website. So there are some places that Those are doing... deeper conversations are sort of happening. Yeah, yeah. And, like, there's a... This is... That letterbox is based overseas and there's also, like, a UK print magazine called Little White Lies that I've been reading for years and years mm. and they'll dedicate an issue to a film or a filmmaker or like a kind of trend like the Asteroid City one is coming out every cover of this magazine looks completely different it has like a different artist imagine it and they have reviews of stuff in there new and old you know kind of retroactive reviews but for the most part it's a print magazine focused entirely on interviews features angles different ways into one specific film or person and it's just the fact that that has existed for many years it's it's not all doom and gloom like <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, there yeah. are some people doing really really interesting stuff well it's it's interesting it's that it's also that old thing of like these industries film the arts you know um music actually account for uh, more employment than a lot of other industries that seem to get all of the well, definitely cafes. Let's just say the death. <laughs> but you know, and yet we don't actually seem the the they never make the general news sections unless there's a disaster or mm. a controversy. And it, even something like you mentioned the strike, the there's the writers and actors strike in Hollywood at the moment. That does have an effect here. Mm. It's not something that we hear about. Do you know what the kind of impact of that is is here? Mm. From my understanding, there's kind of a few things that are happening right now or are probably going to be happening soon. The first is like uh, an effect on Australian actors' unions and performers, you know, industry unions. Um, I doubt anyone who's a part of like the Australian writers the Guild of Writers Australia. I think that's what it's called. I'm sorry, I'm getting my abbreviations mixed up from the WGA in America. But, um, you know, the MEAA here in Australia yeah. represents um, creatives and entertainment professionals. But I don't know if anyone who's a part of those organisations isn't watching what's going on overseas and kind of rethinking the kind of deals that they've signed because you know, they might feel like there's less opportunity here. Mm. They might feel that or they might know it for a fact. Um, but I think there's also, you know, Australia is sometimes the home of productions from overseas, mm. um, fully kitted out with SAG members, written by WGA members, um, using Australian production crews. So, you know, we hear about places like Hollywood and even like the Docklands being filming locations for yeah. international productions and that's going to have an effect for sure. Well, I've got to say I was on my lunch break recently and wandered down to uh, the Gem in um, Collingwood uh -huh. and Russell Crowe was uh, in R there Rusty filming. Rusty was having a margarita. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was hard at work filming a oh, scene, okay. you know. But... And and that was like I thought was I thought they were setting it here, and it was like no, no, this is you know ah. Wisconsin or wherever. It was. Interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. huh? Mm. Yeah, um, and I think there's probably one more thing, which is that there's been some talk of like you know the picketed companies, places like Disney, who are not coming to the table uh, for negotiations with any kind of fair deal or, or are willing to kind of negotiate at all. Um, 
there's kind of talk of how they will go around it and access people who are not members of the WGA or SAG to do the work who want an opportunity and that might include writers in Australia, actors in Australia mm-hmm. um, and the effects of taking offers like that, um, you know, crossing a picket line even though you're not a member of the organisation that's striking means automatic lifetime ban from ever being allowed in the WGA or the, or the Screen Actors Guild if you were to somehow get an opportunity overseas. So there are some real effects um, that might be felt here. I haven't heard of any just yet, but I have seen some, you know, talk of influencers and people on TikTok who are just willing to take the deals. Right, that, a uh, lifetime ban means nothing to them. Like, yeah, mm. or maybe they're not thinking of... Uh, they're not listening to Fran Drescher, that's for sure. N- and <laughs> we, we, I learned from an early age n- <laughs> never to ignore Fran Drescher. <laughs> just, just ignore the um, anti-COVID stuff. Yeah. And the fact that she wanted everyone to go to work on set during COVID. But other than sure, that... Sure, 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 sure. She, you can be right on certain things and yeah. very wrong on others. It's look, <laughs> look she, her cousin is also a former Real Housewife of New York, Aviva Drescher, who I don't want to know what conversations are happening around that dinner table, I'm just going to say. <laughs> oh, amazing. Thank you so much for coming and chatting to us this evening. We've been talking to Brodie Lancaster... Um, I was going to say writer about everywhere, everywhere. Do you have anything interesting coming up that you want to alert uh, listeners' attentions to? We have an episode of See Also on Saturday Ah, that's all Barbie and Oppenheimer. And like I said, my opinions on these films change every day. So they've changed since I recorded the episode. (laughs) They'll change after it comes out. Uh, So who knows what I'm going to feel next week. Excellent. Well, find See Also on all of your podcast platforms. And, uh, and find Brody on all of your <laughs> your written forms of <laughs> So um, this week, uh, if you are like me and you had Twitter in your um, in your search bar, uh, it would have changed. The little icon changed mm. to a very ugly <laughs> black X, and uh, Elon's. Complete trashing of a brand is complete. Well, I mean, I we shouldn't rush to the conclusion that it's finished. (laughs) You know. Oh. Well, I mean, I just I feel like we've we've been thinking that for a very long time. When when the Nazis started turning up again, no, I mean, well, he's really done it now, and then he just kept finding new ways to fuck the whole thing up. (laughs) But this is literally the brand is Twitter is over. Oh yeah, well that's true. That's true. It's it's now genuinely shuttered itself to pieces. Or and or as um. Uh, what was his name? Oliver Darcy wrote in um, his uh, CNN dispatches called Reliable Sources. It's very good. He said, um, Twitter, the text-based social media platform that played an outsized role in society by serving as a digital town square was killed by its unhinged <laughs> owner, Elon Musk, on Sunday. It was 17 years old. A zombie Twitter known only as X reluctantly endures. A warped and disfigured platform, X marches on like a white walker, an ugly shell of its former self under the command of a loathsome leader. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, sometimes as a writer you've got to like be like... The use of the word reluctantly, the reluctant endurance of this 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 X thing is is, is wonderful. Uh, the other thing that kind of really stood out to me about it was that like, and this is just so typical of I think the the way that these this has gone since Musk took over, 
is the I don't know if you, you caught the the um, the controversy around the new logo itself, the, act, the actual design of it. Um, oh, so good. Well, because because of course this is what happens. He he is literally a billionaire, and he doesn't just hire a graphic designer to come up with something nice for him. He goes, "Hey guys, if you guys give me something that's really good, I'll I'll make it. I'll make it the logo. We'll do that. We'll do it tomorrow." And it's like, how could that possibly go wrong? Um, so someone's just swiped a well, allegedly. <laughs> so so basically, yeah, he he posted that, and then his kind of someone's just gone quick search vector x. <laughs> um, one of his kind of like you know reply guys. He's obviously got a very a very uh, love he's got heart a few. following. Mm. Um, kind of obliged him with something, and then people just like, and again, one of the wonderful things of of old Twitter was there was this there's there's accounts that are just dedicated to fonts. And they're like, wait a minute, this looks very familiar. And it looks remarkably similar to um, the glyph from Special Alphabets 4, which is a font <laughs> uh, created by Monotype. Uh, Monotype are actually, they've been around for a while. They they gave us such classics as Times New Roman, <laughs> Arial, like the, the Beatles of the, of the of font the, world. Of the font libraries. <laughs> Um, and interesting, so there was a, there was a whole little controversy about that. That Monotype have been asked about this, and they've said it's a really tantalising thing. I don't know if there's going to be more to come out of this. They were asked by various kind of tech publications. Well, did he just go and literally take the X that you came up with for this particular font and, and use it for his logo? And and they, speci- they specifically said it's not the capital X from Monotype. We didn't create that. And then people would say, well, does that mean it's the the lowercase, lowercase sex, and they they haven't replied to that yet. So I don't know if they're like working legal, out their options or something, or who knows. Maybe it's maybe it's just you know the, the vagaries of getting back to a journalist and just being annoyed at them and not wanting to give them any more fuel. But it's kind of interesting. I think there could be something more to come out of this. I'm going to keep an eye on that. Amazing. Charlie. Uh, <laughs> There was a piece in the New Yorker that has restored your, well, our combined faith in, <laughs> although I haven't read it all, so I'm going to ask you a bit about it. Sure. In the long-form New Yorker essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know... They've, they've come back from uh, parties about people <laughs> who love to be cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, actually, you know, you sort of, you've, you've, you've made this point for me, but, like, I think we... Um, we do love, and, and and by the way, it's what the show is for. We do a lot of criticism on the show of, of, of journalism that's shoddy or shallow or, or misleading or any of those kind of things. And I think it's it's really nice sometimes, and we haven't we haven't done it enough lately. We've been a bit too grumpy. I'm just talking about like a really really good story that that um, a good piece of writing, so a wonderful piece of writing, and it is also it's it's I guess doubly relevant to us because it's a, it's a wonderful piece of writing about the craft of journalism, about what it's for, and about what it can achieve. Um, when it's done right. Uh, so the, the headline is, A Small Town Paper Lands a Very Big Story. And this is uh, written by Paige Williams, who's a wonderful writer for The New Yorker, um, who uh, basically followed um, a, a paper called the, um, the, the McCurtain Gazette in, a, in McCurtain County in uh, southeast Oklahoma. A, a, a Which ca- already sounds like... It's already. I'm already feel, imagining the opening scenes of the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and believe me, I think it's definitely going to um, going to get that way because the story is just incredible. Um, 
the Gazette has been around in various forms since 1905. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hard copy daily paper for this local, um, this local uh, town. It's the, the, um, the, the way that she puts it is that it, the McKelton County is geographically larger than Rhode Island, but less populous than the average Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> There's about 31,000 people who live there. Um, 4,400 by the Gazette. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so it's been in print since 1905. And, and it, it sort of accrues all these beautiful details about the place, about people who've, uh, you know, started in their teens and then retired in their 90s, uh, wow. who've just written for them for this whole life. And and, and kind of the fact that it, it covers both kind of fairly, what we do, we'd think of as fairly small time, you know, menial, small town stories. But then... By doing that properly and by by being assiduous and rigorous in their approach, they managed to uncover this incredible story. So the paper is being run by a guy called Bruce Willingham and his wife, Gwen, um, and their, their, their son, Chris, and his wife also work for the paper. Can I just say, um, before you go on, there is a beautiful um, description of Willingham's office at the beginning and it says in in Willingham's clutter bucket of an office a hulking hulking microfish machine sits alongside his desktop computer amid lunar levels of dust he uses the machine to unearth and reprint front pages from long ago yeah it's <laughs> yeah beautiful it's joyous it's joyous mm. so essentially another line that's wonderful in there and i think it's a really this is like the key line of the whole thing is in a small town, a dogged reporter is inevitably an unpopular one. <laughs> um, and the idea that th- there is something about the writing that they do around the count, the sheriff's office, essentially, and uh, the police force in this in this county, uh, and they uncover incredible sort of stories of of of, of graft and maladministration and corruption. And that's one thing if you're doing it for a, if you're doing that for the New Yorker mm. in a big city where you've got a lot of exposure. You've got more protection. You've got so much more protection. Mm. If you are a tiny, t- uh, uh, yeah, again, a a, a, um, a publication that services a town smaller than a Taylor Swift concert, and you leave it, you are in that community, and everyone knows who you are. Then that really does uh, that. There is a risk and a bravery that that takes mm. to to do that. So basically, they got a they got a, a tip off in early twenty twenty one. Um, about the morale of the local sheriff's department. People kept quitting and people kept being fired. There was huge turnover. And just week after week following this and reporting on it diligently, they end up kind of uncovering all of these issues. It gets to the point where someone sends them a, a, a phone call um, essentially saying one of, the, one of the people that they've reported on diligently is saying, I'm just going to question the owner of this paper in front of everyone about these pedophiles I've been looking into. <gasps> yeah, essentially kind of trying to blacken his name with an association with 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 very serious crimes that the Well, you know you you know you're barking up the right tree then. Yeah, yeah, and it keeps going and going and going. Eventually, um they get a hold of well actually via um some some trickery from the paper itself. They they end up recording a a, mis- a meeting of the of the sheriff's commission. Where please, please, it's a pen recorder. It is. It is a. It is a. Um, unbelievable. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, a a recorder <laughs> disguised as a pen, put in a cup, literally in the centre of the table, and they're in having a council this, meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, the, well, the board of commissioners kind of meeting. Yeah. Um, and after the details, meeting kind of breaks Charlie, up, details. Um, they start talking kind of about these stories that are happening. Uh, one of the things that comes out of this conversation is their wistful 
longing for the day when you could take a prisoner out and a, a black prisoner out and lynch them. Oh my god! Yeah, and and then it gets onto this this topic of this paper, and they start talking about the fact that look, I know some guys. There are there are there are holes dug. We could take the care of this. They won't show any mercy. Um, wow. Which is pretty pretty crazy. And 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 you know he said that he's been threatened before, but this one felt more chilling than, than previous ones. One of the um, things, after they reported this story, a lot of people got in contact um, via their newly updated answering machine <laughs> and, and sort of said, well, you know, if this is true, you've got to play that audio. You've got to, you've got to put it up there. And um, again, one of the They most, don't have a website. The beautiful details was that they didn't, they don't have a website. And they exist me, in print only. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. They exist in print only. Uh, and also no one had posted on the newspaper's Facebook page since 2019 <laughs> when Kiara Wembley won the Little Miss Oachito pageant. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually they get, they, they put, they put it on a QR code on their paper and you could kind of get to a, a, a Dropbox folder and listen to it. Jesus, they've worked, they've gone straight from no URL to a QR code. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit! Um, but it, so it is a wonderful, Progress wonderful at piece. The speed of light, and and it's not all. It doesn't all work out, you know, perfectly for them. They, some of the people, some of the main protagonists, leave the paper, and they decide that they can't really take it anymore. They can't take being in a small town and being having that be your role. Um, but it is just a wonderful reminder of what what this whole industry is actually supposed to be for mm. and what can be achieved if you are just simply diligent and fearless and and follow something through to its end. And they took them down. Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's investigations ongoing. Um, mm. that, that, I mean, to be fair, it didn't 100% take them down. I feel, I feel like I'm spoiling the piece for a bit. I think everyone should go out and just read it. Yeah. It's um, not about the, the result anyway. It's about the... the the piece itself and just this incredible description of this yeah this yeah. paper and how it exists and how and and the context of it for sure historically and that's all for this week thanks for listening you can find us every week on your favorite podcast platform and you can follow us on twitter at nad samble at lily juice and at the shuffle diary you can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. 